reading today is uh, taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 4 through uh, 11. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. What do you fear? Do you fear the unknown future? Do you fear getting cancer or Alzheimer's? Do you fear not having enough money for retirement? Do you fear for children and the loved ones who have not professed faith in Christ? Fear comes in many shapes and many sizes. In today's passage, we encounter a teaching about fear. In fact, in the four verses, verses 4 through 7, we encounter the Greek word fear, phobeo, five times. But we also find out that there is a right fear and there is a wrong fear. So it begins, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And first Christ warns of the wrong type of fear and one which should not allow we should not allow to dictate our behavior. This wrong fear is the fear of men. It ties directly to and is explained further on down in verses 8 to 12. But at worst, what Jesus is saying, men can kill you. Not a pretty prospect for sure, one which would reasonably generate some fear. And yet, Christ is saying that's all that they can do. They can have no further power over us. Now it becomes very obvious that Christ has a very different perspective on life and death than we normally do. Our perspective is upon the temporal, the here and now. But Christ's perspective is on the eternal, 
which is, if you haven't guessed, considerably longer. And whenever the topic of death raises its head, it tests our faith like nothing else. We live our lives saying, John 3.16, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But then death faces us in the face. Within the context of our passage today, Jesus is referring directly to persecution. But it applies in all circumstances. Maybe death visits our hospital or nursing home room. Maybe it's the last gasps as we clutch our chest and fall to the ground. For some, maybe it's while the flames rise around us while we're tied to a pole, being burnt to death for our faith. But whatever it is, it is in that moment that our faith is tested. And that's why some people go gripped in fear, almost terror, realizing their faith was lacking or even hypocritical. And it's of no comfort. And yet, the faith of others find a a peace beyond comprehension, courage beyond measure as they see beyond the specter of death to the nail-scarred hands of the Savior beckoning them. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Charles Spurgeon said, Never fear dying, beloved. Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Fear living. That is a hard battle to fight, a stern discipline to endure, a rough voyage to undergo. When we spend our lives loving Christ with our eyes fixed on Him and running the race that is set before us, death becomes but a finish line to our marathon. For all those of you who ran that marathon, you were very happy to see that finish line because it meant rest and recovery. And Jesus then goes on and he issues a a warning about proper fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into the hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, of course, he's speaking about God Almighty. God not only has power over life and death, but he has the authority to sentence one to hell. And while some Christians refuse to believe that there's a hell... Jesus certainly did believe there was a hell. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are told that that authority to judge and to cast into hell has been given to Christ Himself. In John 5, 21, we read, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Then, of course, in Matthew chapter 25, at the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the believers and non-believers, Christ as King will pass sentence 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus is addressing this crowd as friends. In this context, it does not mean that they are all disciples, but perhaps we could say they were all fans following Jesus. They were certainly not hostile like the religious leaders. And Christ is telling the crowd to be fearful of God in the sense of getting right with your maker before it's too late. For he alone will determine one's eternal destiny. But having issued the warning, Jesus then brings words of comfort in verses 6 and 7. Are not the sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. Now, sparrows then were very common birds, just like they are now to us. And birds were often used uh, for the very poor in that day as a sacrifice because they could not afford a, a lamb. In Luke 2:24, eight days after the birth of Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple to consecrate him before the Lord, and they offer two birds in accordance with Leviticus 12:8, which reads, But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. This is another reason why we know that the the wise men didn't show up on Christmas night with their expensive gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh because Mary and Joseph had to offer a poor man's offering, two birds. And sparrows were also food. If you're hungry enough, you're going to eat a lot of things, okay? The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says it's a reference, a common custom in the East of catching small birds and selling them to be skinned, roasted, and sold as tidbits, a bird to a, bird to a mouthful. But the point that Jesus is making, that for those who are trusting God, even in the face of persecution, they were not forgotten by God. In fact, as common as sparrows were and as many of the hairs on one's head, God was aware of each and every one of them. How much more valuable are you than they? He has not forgotten. How could he possibly forget you, the ones he loves? And perhaps in saying that, and giving such assurance of God's presence and love reminded them of Isaiah 49:15, where God says to the people, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Then in verses 8 through 10, Jesus challenges the people and us I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. 
But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And with this background of persecution, Jesus now basically draws a line in the sand. If you acknowledge or profess me before others, I will do the same before my Father and the angels in heaven. This demands two things. First, you must believe in Christ. And second, you must say so. Dr. Rankin notes, to acknowledge Jesus before men is to be open and honest about our total life commitment to him as our Savior and Lord. It is to show that we are Christians by the things that we do and say. It is to work for Christ, play for Christ, witness for Christ in our daily lives. It is to make a verbal confession of our faith both inside and outside the church. Now, while this does not mean that we have to go and stand on a street corner in Manhattan on a box and start preaching the gospel, unless God's calling you to that, then feel free to do that, please. But it does mean that in our everyday world, you acknowledge Christ and live for him in both word and deed. The consequences of acknowledging Christ or not acknowledging Christ are dramatic and diametrically opposed. If we acknowledge Christ here on earth, he acknowledges us in glory. However, if we fail to acknowledge him as our Savior and disown him here, he will disown us at judgment. This is why, as we spoke a couple of weeks ago, hypocrisy is so fatal. For one can act the part and yet in their heart have disowned Christ. And at that time they will hear those dreadful words of Christ in Matthew 7, and then I, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have you acknowledged Christ, professed Christ before others? If you do, be assured God will return it to you in glory before the Father. And next we come to verse 10. We come to one of the most discussed and disputed passages in the Gospels. The mention of the unforgivable sin. Now, scholars have, of all ages have debated the meaning and people have expressed a, a fearful interest in knowing just what it means and whether they are capable of committing such a sin. And we can certainly understand the, that concern but no one wants to commit the sin that's unforgivable. So it's a good thing you're here today to get the answer what this is. Need a drink for this one. Down through the centuries, 
Various sins were defined as this unpardonable sin. Some claimed it's murder. Some said it was divorce. Others claimed it was lying as a witness under oath. Some say it was hypocrisy. And this is why it is absolutely essential that we must be very careful to keep what is being said in its historical context. To lift this verse out by itself has resulted in nothing but confusion, concerns, and fears. This sin is only mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Nowhere else in the New Testament. Even within these Gospels, it is mentioned only once, and that in a specific situation. And that specific situation we saw in Luke, back in Luke 11:15, and what followed. After Jesus drove out a demon from uh, the man who was mute, we read, but some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. This is the incident that brings about Jesus' comment about the unforgivable sin. Now Luke places a whole chapter between that and the discussion of this sin. Matthew brings the two much closer. And Mark, the shortest and most condensed gospel, unites them. Because Mark unites the two, let's turn to Mark's account in chapter 3. And in verse 22 we read, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we know this because further down, Mark tells us this in verses 29 and 30, where Jesus says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, he said this because, this is cause, They were saying he has an impure spirit. They're not talking about murder. They're not talking about divorce. They're not talking about hypocrisy or any other sin. He said this because he said they had an untoward, that he was doing his works by the power of Satan. So that verse links it to the incident, and we know exactly what the unforgivable or eternal sin is. Therefore, it's very limited. One could basically not believe the work of the Holy Spirit, or one in their unbelief might say it was some sort of trick going on, but that is not this sin. One can say they do not believe in certain gifts of the Spirit are for today such as tongues, but that is not this sin. No one must specifically be claiming and attributing Satan's power to the Holy Spirit. That's when you commit this sin. One other aspect that we have to bear in mind here was this. Jesus is addressing Jews. Their limited concept 
of the Holy Spirit was not the same as ours, which is fully developed understanding the Trinitarian God as we do. They would understand the ministry of Jesus, I mean the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus said, but by the finger of God, the power of God. It was Jesus doing these miracles by the power of the Spirit. So to, to denounce the work of the Holy Spirit as satanic was to denounce Jesus' work as well. And if we explore this a little bit further, the phrase in verse 30, because they were saying, in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, which implies a continuous repetition, repetitious act, and fixed attitude. In other words, and this is important, this is not a one and done sin. But it means a continuing in such sin. Such continuing blasphemy leads to the hardness of a heart. And the consequential terror of a hardened heart is that God, as we read in Romans 1, 24 through 28, that dreadful phrase, God gave them out. God gave them over to such sin. There's a limit to God's long-suffering. Remember that it was God who shut the door on the ark. Shutting in the chosen family and shutting out everyone else, at which time repentance became impossible. So we define this unpardonable sin as it denotes a continuous and consciously wicked rejection of the saving power and grace of God towards man. Only the man who sets himself against forgiveness is excluded from it. The one who consistently defies, resists, and curses the work of the Holy Spirit by attributing it to Satan closes himself off to ever experiencing the Spirit's power. Now, Jesus understood his own unique position as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And there was natural confusion, ambiguity, and questions about who he was and, and what was he teaching. There was other accusations that floated around. Can anything good come from Galilee? And yet these accusations, questions, and disbelief were mainly done out of ignorance of his person. And all these could be forgiven. But the miracles were a sign and verification that Jesus operated by the finger of God, which translates by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John 10:38, Jesus said, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And then there's a verse in 1 Corinthians 12:3, which speaks to all believers. It reads, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. 
And what basically means is that no true Christian can curse their Lord. They cannot curse Him in their heart, nor can they deny the work of the Holy Spirit by saying that it's performed by Satan. In other words, Christian, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Having warned against denying Christ before man and the sin against the Holy Spirit, Jesus turns to a, a much more reassuring truth about the Holy Spirit, His comfort and teaching. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about what you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The first thing we should notice is that this is a definitive statement. It does not start with if you are brought. It says when you are brought. It will happen. Hard times and persecution is on its way. But Jesus reassures them by saying, do not worry. Do not be anxious, some translations. Why? Because the Holy Spirit within you will teach you how to respond. He'll give you the words. He'll tell you what to say. That's part of his teaching ministry. John 16, 12. Jesus was at the Last Supper. He tells his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. We need a guide when we don't know how or where to get somewhere. When Helen and I travel overseas, other countries, we travel on a guided tour. Because if they plop me in the middle of a country, I have no idea where I am. I need a qualified person who knows the area and has the experience what the culture has to offer to lead us because we don't know. And the same concept applies to the Holy Spirit. He will guide you. But notice it also says, at that time. I don't need a guide when I'm here. I need a guide when I'm there. On Long Island, I don't need a guide. But put me in France, I need a guide. So I only need a guide at that time. And basically we're saying that the Spirit will supply what you need at that time. Jesus told the disciples, there's much more you need to know, but you can't bear it right now. Spirit will teach you and guide you at that time. As one author notes, it suggests that there is time needed or that this guidance is gradual. And it is not surprising that we read in the New Testament that we ought to grow in grace 
and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the fact that Jesus said that he will guide you into all truth suggests that we are not going to learn all the truth of the Bible at once. Jesus is not going to give you the dump truck effect. Genesis to Revelations, one night. No, the Spirit will guide you as you need it. But it also implies that we must be seeking the Spirit as we go. That's what growing is all about. Knowing what the Word of God is all about. Christ's Spirit in us unfolds the truth of Scripture to us and guides us in our understanding and application of those truths every day. Fear. There's a good type and there's a bad type. For the believer resting in Christ's love, the fear of man should not dictate how we live. Not now and not even in times of persecution. For his love casts out fear. We rest in the hands of our sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. Nothing escapes him. Not you losing a hair on your head. Some of you are doing a better job than others. Nor the simplest, smallest sparrow that falls to the ground. As one writer chided believers, Christians sometimes make themselves into elephants afraid of mice. You have the creator of the universe on your side, not to mention you've been given eternal life. Whom or what shall you fear? To be afraid of anything other than God himself is like an insult to God. Let me close by reading that famous section from Romans, chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we face, uh, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors 
through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Whom shall we fear? Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and our God, how we praise you for your love. We praise you that we are your children. We praise you that we are in the palm of your hand. We praise you, Lord, that you protect us and not one hair of our head will be lost without you knowing it. We praise you, Lord, that you have blessed us with eternal life. We praise us that you have justified us and forgiven us. We praise you, Lord, that you have done all these things. Whom should we fear? If God be for us, who can be against us? This body they may kill, but the soul, spirit, Lord, will live. And we will live until a new body is rejoined with our spirit. We will dwell with you in the house of the Lord forever. We praise you and we thank you for your grace to us. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.